What It Takes is brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, Google Nest. Google Nest is helping people decarbonize their lives with Nest Renew. Nest Renew is a new service that leverages the Nest thermostat to help people use cheaper, cleaner energy at times when more carbon-free solutions are available on the grid. Our ability to really reach a lot of people to make an impact, I think, is the holy grail of clean tech, right? Because as we say at Nest Renew, if we all do a little bit, it can add up to a lot. That promise is really exciting. That's Gisela Glant, a partnership lead for Google Nest. Later in the show, Gisela describes why partnerships with utilities and energy service providers make Nest Renew so valuable for unlocking the growth of clean energy. To learn more about Nest Renew, visit nestrenew.google.com or click the link in the show notes. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. The energy we use in our homes remains one of the largest sources of emissions in the country. About 20% of our energy-related GHG emissions comes from fossil fuels used to power gas furnaces, stoves, water heaters, and AC units. And with the U.S. predicted to add more than 62 million new homes by 2050, getting fossil fuels out of our houses, apartments, and condos is crucial, and we have the tools to do it. Weatherization, insulation, and heat pumps can drastically reduce emissions generated from keeping our homes comfortable. But we need to increase consumer awareness and decrease the upfront costs for the improvements and technologies needed to decarbonize our homes. Take heat pumps, for example. They can keep a home warm or cool more efficiently than any furnace or AC unit. And yet a survey of Northeast homeowners found that 47% had never even heard of a heat pump. And 70% had never thought of getting one, mostly because until recently, they've been too expensive. With the help of a decarbonized electric grid and with the subsidies and incentives in the Inflation Reduction Act for homeowners to electrify, the residential housing sector can meet the 28% emission reduction target for 2025 under the Paris Agreement. But getting there means incentivizing homeowners to view residential energy solutions not as a financial risk, but as a comfort and savings reward. And that's exactly what our guest, Lauren Sells, CEO and co-founder of Sealed, is doing. Sealed makes it easy and affordable for homeowners to get off of fossil fuels. The way that we do that is We make it easy by figuring out the best set of solutions for each homeowner, and then we find the best contractor or set of contractors to do the work. But the key reason why people trust us to help us make those decisions is because the way that we finance the improvements, where we cover the upfront cost and get paid back through the energy reductions over time. Sealed takes the guesswork out of decarbonizing your home by pairing you with contractors and footing the initial bill themselves. By tying Sealed's financial performance to homeowners' energy savings, Sealed provides a massive incentive for homeowners who otherwise might be leery of making their homes more energy efficient. The ultimate goal for Sealed is that every home in America is completely decarbonized and not reliant on fossil fuels. Since launching in 2012, Lauren and her team found that in order to achieve their goal of decarbonizing more homes, they had to convince consumers that investing in new products like insulation and heat pumps just made sense. In a warming world where traditional AC can strain power grids, cheap, energy-efficient cooling is a must. And then also, um, this is something that hasn't been spoken about as much, is that people need air conditioning and climate control to adapt to the rising temperature in this country. So it's important that as we're trying to adapt, we don't also make climate change worse. Lauren and the SEAL team learned early on that relying on contractors and utilities to get the word out wasn't going to be enough. In 2018, six years after the company was founded, they went direct to consumers. When we started, we had nothing. And in fact, we had initially a different product than we had today, which was more of an insurance type product where we would guarantee a certain amount of energy reductions on someone's bill. And by monitoring real-time energy consumption for their customers, they're able to show up at the end of the day with clear proof of savings. That's real dollars for customers and an up to 60% reduction in energy use for sealed homeowners. So we've come a long way since then. Um, We have around 180 employees. We're in five different 
states. We have multiple different product offerings. And, you know, I think what's really different about the company today versus when we first started is that now we have a performance-based financing product where we're taking all the risk on behalf of customers that these technologies are going to be effective. I spoke with Lauren about what it takes to encourage new growth in the residential efficiency and electrification market. We also talked about her experience as a young founder and CEO. We started with her childhood in New Jersey, where her strong personality and tall stature made her stand out to her peers and adults. So in terms of your early life and education, you grew up in New Jersey. Both of your parents were physicians and three out of four of your grandparents were immigrants who were political refugees. Tell me about that. Yeah. So grew up in New Jersey and actually um, since then, after living in New York for a long time, I've moved back to New Jersey. But, you know, I, I had a great childhood. As you mentioned, three of my four grandparents were immigrants and my one grandfather who wasn't an immigrant is the son of immigrants first generation in his family to go to college. So it's really kind of like the American dream that my family is living. My grandmother had to flee Nazi Germany in the 1930s. And then my grandparents on my mom's side were on the losing side of the communist revolution. And so they uh, managed to come to the United States. Unfortunately, their, their families were unable to come. But what that meant is that that generation um, had to completely rebuild and start from scratch with very little resources. And the number one thing that they emphasized on both sides of the family was education and making sure that their children were really well educated, um, which panned out pretty well. Both my parents ended up going to college and medical school, and that was kind of, you know, like the key leap into the middle class. And then, you know, my, my siblings and I were kind of, you know, able to have a great head start in life. But, you know, my grandparents were all very anti-waste, right, which I think is reflective in the way, you know, that the space I'm in and energy efficiency and also making sure that we don't spend too much money as a company. But I'll say like they, anything we're spending money on was always on education or on children and, and grandchildren. You know, for example, my, my grandmother, she would dry off her glasses with a tissue and then she would hang it up to dry to use again. Oh, wow. Next level. Yeah, they they really try to make the most of their resources. Yeah, indeed. Your parents would describe you, at least when you were a kid, as headstrong and stubborn, and people always thought you were older because you've always been tall. Do you agree with your parents' description, and what would you say you were like as a kid? Definitely headstrong, definitely stubborn. Definitely stubborn. You know, I always think about like key personality traits and like they have kind of their positive manifestations and their, you know, less positive manifestations. So, you know, I think me, me in particular, a lot of the members of my family, like we're just stubborn and we don't know how to give up. And you can also interpret that in a positive way. Be like, we have really strong will. We set out to do something and we won't stop until we accomplish it. I think from a parental perspective, when you have a very willful, you know, toddler or teenager, that can be very difficult for parents. Indeed. And tell me more about you as a kid. Like, what activities did you do? What were you into? Were there any things that were, I don't know, difficult as a kid? I did so many activities. I was very nonstop, you know, scheduled from dawn until dusk. I did dance. I did all kinds of sports. I did a sport at least one sport a season. And then I was very into classical music, playing the piano first and eventually the flute. And I did a lot of activities at school. I was just a really busy kid. At the time, it, it meant a lot of very late nights doing homework because I would get home at like 10 p.m. and then have to do homework. But now like, I kind of credit that to me being well-rounded and having met and interacted with lots of different people and activities. And, um, you know, it was really great in retrospect. Yeah, got it. And in high school, did you have a sense of what you would do for your career? I did. I was planning to be a classical musician. Um, I was really set on it. Um, I think my parents were a little bit less sure about that. It's not the most financially stable career. Um, but I really thought that that's what I would do. And in fact, senior year, most of the places I was applying to were music conservatories. Hmm. And then what happened in terms of what did you ultimately decide to do? So what I realized and experienced kind of like midway through audition senior year is that viewing music as my job and my profession really sucked a lot of the passion and enjoyment and pure joy that I had around it. And I thought, if I'm feeling this way, then how am, how am, I, 
am I going to feel in, you know, four or five years where this is what I'm doing to feed myself and pay rent? How will I feel about it then? Like, what compromises will I have to make as a musician and the way that I express myself musically to make ends meet? And I realized that I didn't want to kind of destroy the joy I had around music to do it as a career. But it meant that I was extremely confused about what was next, um, which kind of led me not going to college right away. Yeah. Tell me about that. What what did you do next? So I decided I wasn't ready to go to college yet. And I actually turned down all of the offers of admission that I had. And I needed to find uh, a job and make money. Um, so I worked in HR at a hospital at first, and then I got a full-time job on a political campaign, a Senate campaign in New Jersey. And then, you know, I was able to save up a bunch of money. And then I did volunteer work abroad for like eight or nine months in like the second part of the year before I went to college. So I spent extended period of times in Vietnam and then in West Africa, mainly in Ghana, but also in Burkina Faso and Mali. And what kind of work were you doing there? Um, a combination. So when I was in Vietnam, um, volunteered at um, a couple of orphanages, and I taught English classes to college students at night, um, which is super interesting cultural experience. I think I probably learned more from those students than they learned from me, as they would, you know, bring me to their homes, and I would go out to karaoke with them. So that was a great um, kind of like cultural learning experience. And then when I was in Ghana, um, I was living with a pastor who was in charge of a local orphanage with around 70 kids. And I'll say, I learned a lot of lessons um, during those months that I that were there that really influenced like my future decision-making. And I'll say the biggest takeaway I had from that year is that I had no business being any of those places. I didn't have any skills or resources that could materially help improve the situation. In fact, I might have been contributing to making things worse. And uh, that was my biggest takeaway, that I needed to acquire some real skills and think through all the consequences of the actions I was taking if I wanted to have a positive impact on the world. Mm. And then that led you to Bernard College, where you studied economics. Why Bernard and why economics? Yeah. um, You know, sometimes you just get a gut feeling that you're meant to be a place. And I went on a tour of Barnard, and I just fell in love with it. Um, And then intellectually, everything made made sense. Um, You kind of get the small liberal arts experience, um, but you're part of Columbia University. So I was able to be, you know, in the Columbia Orchestra, for example, um, and also participate in Columbia Athletics, Columbia Clubs. You were a rower? Is that right? Rower, yeah. And then when I was abroad, I also um, did triathlons as well. Oh, wow. Nice. So that was a big part of, of my college life, yeah, being an athlete. Um, oh, and you were an Olympic weightlifter? Is that right? Olympic weightlifting, the, the, the sport. I was not in the Olympics. Not, not in the Olympics, yeah, but the not sport in the Olympics, of Olympic but yes, weightlifting. The sport of Olympic weightlifting, I did. Um, that was after college. So, And this actually happens to a lot of former rowers, which is a super intense sport. A lot of people end up doing CrossFit which I started um, around the same time I started Sealed, actually. It was like the same week I decided that I wanted to do CrossFit. What I was from doing CrossFit is that I was never going to be able to be super competitive overall at CrossFit. I'm just way too tall for it. But uh, in weightlifting, they have weight classes. Um, I can p- compete against other people who are who are tall. And uh, I just fell in love with the sport from from there. And one thing that I thought was super valuable for me is that I would advise to other founders is to find one hobby, like one hobby, not five hobbies, one hobby mm-hmm. that you can really throw yourself into that gives you an identity out of that's outside of just being the founder of mm-hmm. your company. It kind of provides you with a little bit of balance and stability when things can be a little bit rocky at work. Such good advice. And so you graduated from Barnard in 2011, and then you worked as an investment analyst at McKinsey for a little over a year. Tell me about that first job out of college. Yeah. So McKinsey is a great place to learn. Really excellent people there, really interesting people, really passionate people. Great place to learn skills. But I'll say, like, I wasn't that passionate about the work I was doing, even though I really liked my colleagues. And I also had a mentor there who encouraged me to quit and thought I'd be better off starting my own company. That's kind of what he thought I was meant to to do, and he was right. But it was a really great year spent there, and I I wouldn't take it back for anything. Mm-hmm. So your boss at McKinsey actually encouraged you to quit your job and pursue entrepreneurship. What did you think about their advice? You know, my mentor there, he really 
gave honest feedback and honest advice. That's kind of what he was known for. Not everyone liked it, but I thought it was prudent advice and really gave me a lot to think about. I stayed long past the time that he gave me that advice and no regrets there, but he could clearly see something in me that wasn't meant for you know a large consulting firm. And he was right. But the interesting thing that he saw that I didn't see at the time, and now I can only see in retrospect, is that I had so many different jobs and internships before I graduated college. Like I was always working. I always had a job. And every experience I had, it just showed me that that's not what I wanted to do. And then when I met my co-founder, Andy, and we started Sealed, for the first time, I knew that's exactly what I was supposed to be doing. And that's the first time I had ever had that feeling. Hmm, mm-hmm. It's such a it's such a powerful feeling. Tell me about how did you meet Andy? Where did the idea for Sealed come from? I met Andy on AngelList of all places. So if those of you don't know, know who that is, it's it's a website that's for startups to meet investors, other founders, find uh, startup team members. So I met him on there um, after our kind of meeting with maybe like nineteen or twenty other kind of people in the startup scene in New York, and. I knew right away that that was the right person for me to be working with. Andy is someone who's super creative, and he had a deep background in energy efficiency, which is something that, until I met him, I know knew very little about, um, almost nothing. And the thing that really stuck out to me about the energy efficiency space and just home decarbonization in general is that the hardware already existed to completely decarbonize housing stock. But it saw really low adoption. And that was a really intriguing problem to me and and to him. And we knew that we wanted to to work together. And then, you know, the idea kind of evolved over time. But the entire time, we've been trying to solve the same problem, which is this 20% greenhouse gas emissions problem. And you're still still co-founders almost, what, 10 years later? Yeah, we've been working together. Actually, end of October, it'll be nine years that we've been working together. So that's a long time for co-founders to stay together. Like usually like someone's breaking off by now. Yeah, yeah. How did you know he was the right person, especially because you didn't know him before meeting him on AngelList? Yeah, so, um, you know, I had a good feeling when I met him, but I'll say like one thing I was a little bit worried about is like, um, would he be so mission-driven about the environment that it would influence like business decisions. Um, like, w- like, w- was he the right person to be running like a startup where you have to be very focused on, you know, getting your company to be successful, especially if you're going to take outside funding. And I'll say like in college, like I had some experiences with eco reps. I don't know if that's a thing anymore, but you know, people try to get you to reduce your personal waste consumption and stuff like that. And I remember they were always like harping on bottled water. And in fact, they stopped offering bottled water where I was, and then it just caused everyone to drink soda instead of water. So anyway, I was kind of interested in that experience. So one of the things when we were exploring whether we wanted to work together, Andy wanted me to go out to Long Island, just meet some contractors that we were thinking about working with. Um, And I really wanted to bring a bottle of water with me. But I opted not to. I was like, oh, he's going to be like this eco-ref who's shaving me for a bottle of water. And then he picked me up and then let alone in like the back of his car, there were some empty Poland Springs bottles. And so I was like, okay, this is someone I can work with. And for Andy, it was, you know, he was like looking at my background, which I think on paper maybe like made me seem a little bit uptight. But what got him is that I spent my last summer before senior year of college being a street musician. So he's like, okay, this is someone who has grit. This is someone who has some some hustle in her too. Indeed, indeed. Um, and you were just 25 years old when you started Sealed with Andy. Is that right? Yes. I was very young and I knew very little. <laughs> how how was it? How did you think about it at the time if you, if you were thinking about your age? I didn't have that much experience with different companies outside of working at McKinsey, which is obviously a very different place. And so I think I just was too naive to know that I was so young to be doing it. I think I noticed it more when other people would react to me. I think especially in the energy space, um, predominantly male space, especially men who are a little bit older. And I really stuck out like a sore thumb there. Um, So I think that's when I really started to notice it. But I didn't think too much of it at the time. In in retrospect, 
I know like how how little I knew, but sometimes you have to be a little bit naive to take on a challenge that's maybe too big for you. Um, and and if if I knew better, I probably wouldn't have done it. And then you know, sealed wouldn't be where where it is today. Hmm. Well said. I can definitely relate. Um, so after you made the decision to launch Sealed with Andy, this was at the end of 2012. You tried selling to customers right away. You, as you said, you know the the hardware at least already existed. Tell me about that first six to 12 months. Like, how did you approach the company in those early months and in the first year? Yeah, so we we started acquiring customers for our original product, um, like late 2013, um, and then we have like a few customers on our platform, like coming into like. Uh, the new year of 2014. Like I actually remember being up on like New Year's trying to figure out how to like send the first bills to our first batch of <laughs> customers. Um, and the original product was that insurance product. Yes, exactly. Guaranteed savings product. And I'll say like it was a grind. Um, like we were looking for some initial proof points, but our our initial strategy was actually to go to market through contractors. At the time, there was actually a couple of like, I'll call like super contractors, like large contractors around that had like, you know, hundreds or up to like a thousand employees that we were planning to sell through. And so, you know, we want to get a couple of our own customers and then go through that channel. And like, it was just a grind. It's so hard to be reliant on partners. And we had a lot of fits and starts and eventually we're like, okay, well, we just need to sell this stuff ourselves. Got it. Got it. And then how was that once you made that decision? It was still hard. I mean, fundamentally, like we had the wrong product. But the tough thing for us is that it wasn't a product that failed. It was a mediocre product. And those are the hardest things to give up on because you always see these signs of promise and hope. And you know that your customers like the product. It's just not flying off the shelves. And so it really took us a long time to pivot off of that because we always thought it was was about to work. But eventually what we realized is that we were not addressing two of the biggest barriers um, that I think were just way underestimated by everyone, not just us, which is hassle and expense. With our original product, the thesis was that people don't believe the energy savings were real, which is true. But the bigger barrier is, you know, people had to find their own contractors and they had to find their own financing. And so most people would never even get to the stage where they're like, oh yeah, I would like my energy savings to be guaranteed. Got it. And how long into the company, how many years into the company, did you finally make the decision to pivot? Yeah, so there's kind of like two critical pivot points. So in 2016, that's when we're like, we need to have integrated financing into the offering. And that's how we, you know, kind of came up and launched our financial product, which we have today, where we're paying to cover the upfront cost and getting paid back through the energy reductions. But we were still uh, mainly selling through contractors, or we had a field sales force, similar to the solar companies. And it wasn't until beginning of 2018 that we moved to our current model, which is mainly digital marketing plus inside sales. And that's when things really started mm-hmm. to take off for us as a company, because that's what actually made it easy for customers to buy these improvements. Mm-hmm. And that coincided with you going from your previous role when you started the company, which was COO, to becoming CEO. Um, Tell me about making that decision. Yeah, so um, I ended up becoming CEO in September 2018, um, which is around like nine months after we found like our true product market fit and a go-to-market strategy that was working. Um, And, you know, a couple reasons for that. one, like it was then time for the company to raise institutional capital. And just the activities of the CEO changed pretty dramatically. Like in the early days, it's all about finding product market fit, that initial go-to-market strategy. And then the later stage you get, it's like about raising raising capital, it's about recruiting, and it's about strategy. My co-founder, I thought that like overall I would enjoy that job more than he would and therefore probably be better at it over the long term because if you don't like the things that you're doing every day, you're probably not going to be that successful at them over the long term. And then also like my co-founder, Andy, he's super creative, just has this really amazing mind for seeing market opportunities and product opportunities. And there's going to be less and less work um, of that going forward you know, just given the stage of the company, I'll say less work on that as the CEO. Still plenty of work for that at the company. And then we have a great relationship. So he's, you know, still at the company today and, you know, contributing in really big ways. 
Coming up, Lauren and the team at Sealed prove to investors that the model they have in place is worth building out. But first, a word from our exclusive sponsor of this season of What It Takes, Google Nest. At the top of the show, we heard from Gisela Glant, who leads energy and technology partnerships for Nest Renew. What we're trying to do, though, is is reach millions of users at Google scale. And so how do we how do we make sure that we can scale our reach in a way that really helps the product be successful? Nest Renew is a service for Nest thermostats that allows customers to shift heating and cooling electricity usage to times when the grid is cleaner. Nest Renew leverages the best-in-class technology. It also leverages partnerships with utilities and distributed energy companies around the country to achieve scale. And that's where Gisela comes in. We have very, very good, important working relationships with the utilities, and they are our partners to make these products successful. Those are all different kinds of partnerships, which makes the work really fun. Thanks to these partnerships, Nest Renew Premium can match the fossil fuel electricity used in a home with enough clean energy to cover the average U.S. household and do it in a highly engaging, personalized way. The ecosystem is changing so quickly, constantly all the time. Uh, There's so much evolution of technology, of new uses of existing uh, services. And so that's that's the really great thing about Google, that we are strongly cross functional, and that makes for kind of better product delivery. If you want to partner with Nest Renew to help unlock the growth of clean energy, visit nestrenew.google.com or click the link in the show notes. Over the first four years of Sealed, you raised $4 million from friends and angels. What was it like bringing in that initial capital? It was a grind, honestly. Um, There were so many different rounds that we raised from so many different investors. I think we were very fortunate that we had, you know, a few core people who just never gave up on what we were doing. But it was definitely challenging. And, you know, we had to go and get more money like pretty often, um, which is, you know, very challenging and, and very distracting. But I was very fortunate that my co-founder, Andy, had a previous energy efficiency startup that had raised money. And so there were some repeat investors from that who backed us again. So that kind of gave us a head start. Because, you know, at the time I was 25 and like my personal network, there was a couple of people who could write angel investor dollars, but very limited. Not not a lot of people in that age group have money to invest. So very fortunate that Andy had a broader network than, than I did in the early days. And then in March of 2019, Sealed raised a 13 million Series A with City Rock Venture Partners, Cyrus Capital Partners, and HL Capital. What was it like raising the A, and how did it differ from that initial seed capital that you had brought in over the first four years? Yeah, I mean, I think that the biggest difference is that I really ran a process, right? I had a set of materials, I had a data room, um, and it just was a much more organized process. And I think you you have to be when you're going after institutionals because like with angel investors, you can pick up like one small check and then another one. But like with institutionals, like you get a term sheet and you negotiate it and then do all these like, you know, hundreds of pages of legal documents. So I think that was a bigger, um, that was a really big change. For me, it was also like the first time I was in charge of a fundraise of any kind. And then I'll say, like, once we had institutional backers, it was really game-changing for the company. One, to have a longer period of time to operate where you have runway. That was huge. I'll say, like, the lead investor of that round and the board member we got from that, like, was really, like, an expert in the space, both with structured financing, but also the energy space. Just was a huge value add. And, you know, I think, like, the biggest struggle I had during the Series A is that I didn't know a ton of investors. Um, but that's where kind of you know, reaching out to my my wider network, even people I didn't know that well for help really helped. But kind of once we had a couple of institutionals on the cap table, the Series B was a lot easier to run a like a more time-constrained process because all the intros could be lined up very quickly. And so in those first few years of the company, you know, through through the A, um, tell me about just what it was like building the company what were you working on? How are you building the technology, especially post-pivot to the business model that you have today? Yeah. Well, I'll say like on the technology piece, you know, remember how it took us four years to find product market fit? It's actually very fortunate we went through that period of time because that's what allowed us to collect all the data so we could do the financial product we have today. Because you have to be really, really confident in your energy savings predictions and and like if you're going to put up a bunch of capital up front and bet that it's going to happen. In retrospect, it was a blessing in disguise. Also, the fact that there was not a lot of money available for clean tech companies back then, which has now been rebranded to, to climate tech. So anyway, so we were able to build up a lot of IP 
early on. Um, but also like the focus kind of after the Series A is, you know, how do you take something that's working at a small scale and scale it up to make it bigger? And, you know, I think it's kind of through two things that I think are the most important through technology, but also through people. We were a really small team at the Series A. We were around 10, 10 people and it had been the same, you know, 10 people for, for a while. And so, you know, expanding the team, uh, increasing, you know, the amount of money that the company was spending was definitely a, a scary step for a company that had kind of lived on a very small amount of resources for a long time. Um, but it was, it was a very important step. And then tell me about what the product pivoted into. And so Sealed covers the upfront cost, but the homeowner owns the equipment and then they pay for it over time based on their savings. Yeah, that's correct. So I'll say like, that's like, um, what I'll say like the financing piece of our business. I think the key thing that makes everything work together is the integrated financing, which is kind of like, I'll say like the the, the trust building factor, because we're willing to stand behind the improvements, the contractors and the scope of work. Um, but the more important thing for homeowners is that it's easy and as little hassle as possible. Because if a homeowner tries to do this stuff on their own, they have to figure out the right solutions, right? Which people know they, what the problem is, but they don't know what the solutions are, let alone how to cobble together a group of two or three different contractors to come up with a scope. And by the way, like, and this is like a, a common thing we, we we hear from customers who might have tried to go it on their own before. It's like they'll get one quote for $10,000 and another quote for like $40,000. And it's so difficult for them to assess what they should do. So I actually mm-hmm. think like the make it easy component of our product is just as important, if not more important than like make it affordable or make it accountable. Got it. And then what types of improvements are we talking about? So primarily right now we're focused on air sealing and insulation. So that kind of falls in the weatherization or energy efficiency bucket. And then we also like to electrify homes. So that's moving people off of oil and gas and onto all electric. And in particular, we like uh, heat pumps. I think are a great technology. Because, you know, the ultimate goal is to decarbonize homes. And so a lot of people instantly think about renewables and getting people onto solar or solar plus storage. But if someone's still heating with oil or gas, you're never going to get them onto all renewables versus there's a very clear pathway to making, you know, the electric grid more renewable and also rooftop solar and community solar. Were there any points along the way, you know, from the very early days through raising the A, you know, ahead of the B, where you thought you were going to close the doors? And if so, how close did you get? You know, was it months, weeks, days, hours? Do you know what's funny? We got really, really short on cash quite a few times, maybe down to like $4,000 in our bank account, like as low as that. But I never thought that we were going to fail, which is kind of crazy (laughs) when you put those two facts together. Um, But I always thought that we would figure it out. Um, even in and those you did, really tough, here. tough moments, and, when, and we did. Yeah, I never, I never thought that we were going to fail. I think there's other people who definitely thought we were going to fail. I think part of it is that in my mind, when we're kind of in like a tough situation, I always run through my head like, what is the worst case scenario here? And that always includes like some form of like the company shutting down, everyone losing their jobs. Etc. But what I find to be very helpful in those scenarios is like let it play out in my mind, accept that it's a possibility and move forward. And usually that helps me find an answer because I'm not so bogged down in like the what if, like what happens if, if I fail. I like let myself think, think through it and then I put it aside. Are you generally an optimist? I think you have to be to be a <laughs> startup founder because like it's so hard and it's, and it's usually harder for longer than you think it's going to be hard. And even when times are good, it's still hard. And so you, <laughs> you have to be optimistic and you have to be able to envision a future that's different than it is today. And not just your company, but in terms of the, the world and, and technology. So yeah, I think there's an element of op of optimism. I think you have to have a pretty healthy ego to go out and start a company too, right? To think that you're the one who's going to create this new thing for the first time. And so, yeah, I think those are some traits of founders that I view as positive rather than negative. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, agreed. Um, in terms of the company today, so you started Sealed almost 10 years ago. And then earlier this year in April, you raised a 29.5 million Series B led by our friends at Fifth Wall with participation from Robert Downey Jr.'s footprint 
Coalition Ventures, and then returning participation from Cyrus Capital and City Rock Ventures. And this was after raising a $16 million kind of earlier tranche of the Series B in 2021. And so that brings total capital raised to 45.5. When you reflect on fundraising, what have you learned and what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who are raising now? Yeah, I think that my number one piece of advice is to be prepared for the fundraise. Have all your materials, have all the stuff in your data room, and do like a test run with friendly investors, either your existing investors, or like if you have friends who are VCs who would never be able to invest in your company because it doesn't fit their investment thesis or the stage or is wrong, just like get feedback on the materials in advance and then go out when you're ready. I think that's my number one piece of advice. And know who the top firms are that you want to work with and know how you're going to get introduced to them. Because I'll say like it sometimes works when VC firms cold email you if the right person. It almost never works if you cold email a VC. And so those warm intros are super important. And the warm intro, it doesn't even have to be from someone that you know well. You know that well, but it has to be someone who like the VC views as a credible person. So actually, the, my top recommendation for doing that is look at portfolio companies that the investors have. I mean, see if you know anyone who's connected to the founders or CEO of, of those companies. And then, you know, that's a great thing about being raising your Series B is you already have institutional investors from your Series A. So they can help you come up with these investor lists and figure out ways to get intros. But the, but the A is really hard. So when you were fundraising the B, you did it in two tranches. And that first tranche that you closed in June of 2021, you were raising while pregnant. Is that right? I was. And actually, I had the baby in the middle of the raise before we actually closed. So How that was that? a pretty pretty wild experience. So, um, you know, when I started the fundraise, I knew it was going to be pretty tight because um, I didn't start until I might have been like eight months pregnant uh, at the time. So, like, I knew <laughs> I was cutting it close. Uh, um, and then it ended up being a competitive round. And so, that sometimes actually makes things drag out longer because you have to value your options, you're checking everyone's references and stuff like that. It just makes things take longer. And so managed to sign a term sheet before the baby came. And then we're trying to do the docs quickly, but the baby came a little bit early. So we just didn't have time to, to finish up. And it was really a pretty crazy experience because I didn't really take any time off because I knew I was the only person who could close the, the deal. And, you know, I think I take my responsibility as CEO pretty pretty seriously. And I think there was kind of probably like an easier route where, you know, I didn't spend a lot of time on like who the followers were to, to the round and just making sure everything was exactly the way I wanted it. But I really didn't want to compromise um, on anything. Um, but what that meant is like I kind of compromised on, you know, kind of like the recovery period after having the, the baby Um so it was a, it was definitely like a, a challenging time, but I think I've gotten a lot stronger from it. Were you able to take time off after the round was not, fully closed? Not really. Um, and so my biggest like lesson from that is that I needed to like grow the team more. It's like the fact that I couldn't really take any real time off. Like I knew that there were some missing members of the team and some day to day responsibilities I, I had that I needed to give up because. You know, it was probably fine at the Series A stage, but where I knew we needed to get to, I knew I needed more help at the executive level. So, you know, I've spent a lot of the time the, the past year doing that. But it was a really big wake-up call for me about how involved I was in the day-to-day of driving the results of the company. Um, and I think it came at the right time because, like, usually, like, post-speed, that's when you're trying to, like, really take, like, a higher-level view of the company and not be so, like, down down in the weeds. Um, so, like, it, it, was, it was an important lesson, um, but it was, it was definitely, like, a, a tough one to learn at the time. And it was definitely a, it was definitely a challenging period. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so in terms of what you have been able to achieve with all the capital that you've raised, you've mentioned that Sealed is now in five states. Your team is close to 200 people. You have partnerships with all major utilities in New York. Give me a sense of where the company is today in terms of customers and impact, however you measure it. Yeah. Um, you know, I can't disclose our customer count, um, but I will say that some of the things I'm most proud of is... I don't think about it in just in terms of like, you know, 
BTU saved or environmental metrics, I also think about our customers' motivation for doing the work. And that's not kind of like planet-saving stuff. It's like, you know, people couldn't use their living room, right, you know, for half a year. Or like one kid was too hot at night, the other kid's too cold, and people had trouble sleeping. And so I also view impact in that lens as well. And like when I hear those stories from customers, those are some of the things that I feel like the most excited and most proud about because it's it's very, very tangible. Given all the people that you've hired over the course of SEALD's decade-long life. What have you learned about hiring since you started the company? Hiring is really hard, um, and interview processes are not always the best predictor of future results. The big thing, and I think I've learned this more over the past few years, but you need different people for different stages of the company. You know, you need a lot more, like, generalists, like all hands on deck type of people in the early stages, people who are like super, super flexible, um, but like high performing individual contributors. And then as you get later stage, and I'm talking about like the more senior levels, you need people who can really lead teams in still like a flexible way. And so you need different people over time. I think that's hard. The other thing I think in the early days of Sealed, we were probably a little bit too slow to to fire um, when people weren't working out. And like typically in my experience, like you really know within the first couple of months whether someone's going to work out. And you're not doing, you know, the company any favors by, you know, hanging on for a long time. I think the best thing you can do is, you know, starting on day one for someone, like giving them very direct feedback about what they're doing well, what they're not doing well, and just having an open dialogue about how things are going. And I don't think that I gave enough feedback in the early days of Sealed, for sure. Mm -hmm. That's really common. If you could go back 10 years ago to when you were starting the company, what advice would you give yourself? Ask for help when you need it. And I would tell myself that a lot of the problems that Sealed is going to face are not unique to Sealed at all. And that there's people you can call who have had similar experiences who can kind of give you some of the things that they did, what worked, what didn't work. I think, I think especially being so young, I felt like I had to figure out everything by myself or reinvent the wheel or everything had to be so unique to Sealed and that's just not the case. You know, you don't need like your own special like HR handbook, for example. Great advice. What was the single worst day at Sealed? We were about to finally launch a partnership with uh, a larger company who we thought could really help scale up our original product, the Guaranteed Savings product. And it was maybe the day before we were going to launch with them. And then we found out that they were shutting down their business with hundreds of employees. And so that was really, really tough. And we had bet a lot on that and put a lot of our resources into that. We didn't have a great backup plan. So that was a really, really tough day. Hmm. What was the single best day at Sealed? We've had a really good streak of really great days at Sealed, but there's some recency bias. So I'll go with a a new one. Um, When the Inflation Reduction Act got announced and we knew it became real. That was a huge day for Sealed. And I think 10 years ago, when we started on this journey, we couldn't have even imagined the environment we're living today, where there's so much climate tech venture capital interest in decarbonizing homes, um, where there's billions of dollars um, for the work that we're, that, that we're doing, and like a really high, high awareness of how important it is that we're successful. And, you know, I got kind of emotional when I, you know, the bill was being signed and President Biden was there and he mentioned heat pumps. And I thought, this is a huge moment for what we're doing. Yeah. And <laughs> like, made I couldn't it. have even imagined that <laughs> even two years ago, you know, looking around in, in 2020, you know, there were some early signs that some of this stuff might happen. But, you know, and I've just thought how awesome it is that Sealed lived to see this day um, because we almost died so many times. <laughs> Has your leadership style changed over the course of Sealed? Yes. And it has to. I think the kind of leader you are when you're two people in a room trying to figure out a product is completely different than the leader you have to be when you have 180 employees and an executive team. I think that when I was 25, I didn't really know what being a leader meant or the responsibilities that it entailed. Um, I think now I have a better sense of that. But I'm a first-time CEO, so I'm learning new things every day. And I think... One of the things I do to try to constantly evolve as a leader is try to get feedback from 
people at the company, um, from other peers, learning about what they do and don't do, and you know, getting feedback from our board members and investors. But I think different times at a startup, just like they call for different people, it also calls for different types of leadership. And can you speak to your experience as a Chinese American and Jewish woman leading a climate tech company in an industry that, as you said earlier, is majority white and majority male? I don't know it any other way. I do think there's some advantages and disadvantages. I think we'll start with the negative. So on, on the on the disadvantages, you know, people definitely can stereotype you um, and I think have a different expectation of you before you might have a, a conversation with them. I think there's a lot of positives as well. One, I think it makes me a lot more memorable. Um, people you know, will, are more likely to remember me or are more likely to stand out in in a room. I think it's a huge benefit for recruiting. I think it's, you know, it can be easier for other, you know, female minority executives to recruit other minorities and other other women to the company. So I think it's a really big competitive advantage there. I also think that a lot of the experiences I've had being a Women in this space have made me a lot stronger, and I think that's a leadership advantage um, in terms of personal growth. Well said. And then I'm curious about you being a founder, a CEO, a partner, a parent, all at the same time. What is what is it like being all of those things at once? I think it's awesome. I think I have a very, very full life. And, you know, everything I'm doing, I wish had I had more time to do, but what a fortunate position to be in that I have so many things that I absolutely love doing. I think that it makes it easier to balance everything that I have a really supportive husband with a more flexible schedule than I do. Um, I also live very, very close to family. And so all those things are kind of what made it, makes it work for me where I don't feel like that sealed is worse off because I'm a, a wife and a mother. And then also, you know, with now, you know, I'm able to work from home a couple of days a week. And so I feel like I'm able to see my son very often, which is mm. great. That's great. What will the future of residential electrification look like in a decade? I think it'll be very mainstream in a decade. I think it's just the journey to make it mainstream. There's a lot of work to go. Right now, a lot of people don't know what a heat pump is. They don't know what electrification is. People are advertising electrification, but people don't even know what that means or why it benefits them. Um, and I think it's going to be very a very standard thing to do 10 years from now. And I'm excited to live in that world. But the danger is that if it takes too long to get there, there's going to be all these homes that get new heating and cooling systems in the meantime, and they're not going to want to get a new system for another 20 years. So I'm very worried about that. And I feel a huge sense of urgency in the work that Sealed is doing just to go as fast as possibly that we possibly can. Well said. And if Sealed succeeds, what will the company look like in a decade? Um, if Sealed succeeds in a decade, so we'll be all across the U.S. and we'll be some in, some international markets as well. Um, and we will have kind of like a full suite of services to completely decarbonize your home, continue to add more and more new technologies as they come online. Um, and I think we'll just have a really strong team um, across the world. And it just is one of the best places to work and to learn um, whatever stage of your career that you're in. Mm, fantastic. All right. Moving into our high voltage round, the first question is, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? I would be a panda. They're really cute and they're vegetarians. <laughs> I love it. Are you a vegetarian? I'm a vegetarian. Nice. Likewise. What inspires you? My family. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? I would be a fitness instructor. Ooh, fun. I would come to your class. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? My grandparents. Tell me about a specific time that you've failed. I failed when I tried to help orphans in developing countries. And I don't mm. think I help them very much. What lesson has taken the longest to learn? The people you hire, that is the company. Well said. What's the best investment you've ever made? A baby Bjorn bouncer. <laughs> Those aren't cheap. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? The desire to have a positive impact means that you will have a positive impact. Who has had the biggest influence on your life and work and why? My husband has. He 
believed in sealed more than I did in some of the really down moments. And I think that's what kind of got me out of any kind of, you know, hump or negative thoughts that I might have been having. When are you your best self? I'm my best self when I've gotten a full night's sleep and not set an alarm. (laughs) What is your worst trait? I am really, really stubborn. (laughs) If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? I wish that traveling to other countries was more accessible. Hmm. So people could have more different experiences, meet more different types of people. If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? I would like the newest member of the SEAL team to listen to this podcast. Nice. I bet they will. <laughs> Probably. Uh, when was the last time you were scared? When I'm reading in the news about potential nuclear Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> Very timely. What is your best quality? I never give up. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... They have the wrong people. If you really knew me, you would know... That I love reality TV. (laughs) Success is? Getting to the end of your life and being satisfied with what you have and what you've accomplished. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have... Asked for help earlier on. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be... Mitigating climate change. I'm most proud of... My baby. To build a successful startup, what it takes is... Everything you have. (laughs) Well said, and what a perfect way to end. Lauren, thank you so much for joining me. It's been such a pleasure getting to know you better and learning more about Sealed, and I'm really grateful for the work that you're doing. Thanks for having me today. I really enjoyed the podcast. Lauren Siles is the CEO and co-founder of Sealed. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I want to thank our exclusive What It Takes sponsor, Google Nest Renew. I'd also like to thank What It Takes listener Sammy Reifer, who said, What It Takes manages complicated energy conversations to provide insight and pique the interest of any audience. This podcast is a must-listen for anyone in climate tech. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse with support from PostScript Media. Powerhouse works with global corporations and investors to help them find and engage with startups that have the tech that they're looking for. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund and follow us on Twitter at Join Powerhouse. You can follow me at Emily Kirsch. If you enjoyed this show, please give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We read and appreciate all of them, and some of them end up on this show. And if you have a friend or a colleague who you think might like this episode, please send them the link. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. Dalvin Abawaji, Ann Bailey, and Sam Warforth helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand and Greg Villefrank are our engineers. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. <laughs>